0: Hey, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. My guest today is an encore performance by Dr. Arthur Lavin, who's going to spend a lot of time today talking about childhood behaviors that are really amenable to interventions in a surprising way. So stay tuned. As you may remember, Dr. Lavin is a pediatrician in private practice and an associate clinical professor of pediatrics at Case Medical School in Cleveland, Ohio. He is the chairperson of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Psychosocial Aspects of Child and Family Health. And this is the entity of the academy that's charged with developing policy relating to the psychological and social well-being of children. Dr. Lavin is the co-author of two books on parenting, one of which we're going to spend quite a bit of time on today. And that's Who's the Boss? Moving Families from Conflict to Collaboration and Babies and Toddlers Sleep Solutions for Dummies. He serves in leadership positions on national efforts to reduce the impact of neurotoxins on child brains and to stop the incidence of child abuse. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Arthur Lavin. Hi, Arthur. Hi, hey, How are you? I am fine. Thanks so much for coming back. You were a guest on Episode 9, and it was just so good. So here you are back again. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, I'm, del- I'm delighted. And I um, just wanted to know, how are you holding up during the uh, this unprecedented, as they say, um, pandemic? How are you doing?
1: Unfortunately, well, I'm okay. Uh, and we, we see a lot of COVID cases in our practice, um, diagnosed probably a couple hundred cases, despite a lot of uh, precautions. Some of our staff, myself included, have had COVID. Oh, no. Fortunately, everyone's okay. I'm perfectly fine. And I I was able to have our entire office fully immunized, which I'm very pleased about. So uh, everyone's protected now and we can't spread it to our uh, families. But uh, I'd say the biggest impact I've had is a tremendous amount of sadness, seeing people continue to be in contact with each other and actively spreading this germ. We're so close to the end, Leah. And and, uh, we know what it what it takes to really slow down the spread of this germ i'm seeing in particular kids playing high school sports and going to college as major spreaders and i just just wish they'd hold back I, one day we'll, we'll calculate how many elderly people actually passed away because we let our kids uh contact each other and uh, and spread this thing so so we're doing okay but it's a very very sad time
0: well my my parents who are and 90, are living with us and I don't let them go anywhere. I've I've been able to get both my vaccines, but they're on a waiting list, as is my husband. And I I just can't do much. I mean, I go to the grocery store and that's about it because I just don't want to make them sick. So I wish too that people were not so upset about having to do things that, you know, wearing a mask isn't that hard and and you know, I don't want to either. It's a pain, but you know, it's what you got to do.
1: At this point, we're just asking people for a few more months of caution. Yeah, Simple caution, not forever, a few more months and we can put an end to this thing.
0: I love your optimism. That's very helpful to have hope, right? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about this book that you wrote called Who's the Boss? And I was wondering, how did you choose that title?
1: So this was a really a uh, 12 year collaboration with a terrific early uh, childhood expert, Susan Glazer, And what we learned uh, together was looking at the most common conflicts that uh, children, the children are actually the ones who generate these conflicts, uh, young children generate with their parents sleeping through the night and food fights and discipline issues, toilet training, that uh, actually the solution This is true for any age child, any two people. If person A creates a problem, it's very hard for person B to solve it. So it's really in the hands of the person who creates the problem to solve it. And we chose the title, Who's the Boss?, to emphasize the fact the child is generating a problem with tantruming or toilet training that the solution has to lie in the hands of the child.
0: I love that. I love that. So from a, from a developmental standpoint, then, you know, what's going on with these children? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, if I'm a three-year-old and I'm causing a problem, do I have the wherewithal to solve that problem? I mean, how does that fit into where kids are at, you know, three?
1: Sure. So, you no, know, the child's not left alone to solve it. They solve it, but with their parents' help. And so we really try to develop is this idea of what skills does the child bring to the table And to answer your question, they're considerable. There's very, very few of these sort of conflict issues. The the child's generating the conflict. They almost always have the ability to solve the conflict. So the child's generating difficulty sleeping through the night. They clearly have all the power necessary to help themselves sleep through the night or manage their uh, anger around discipline issues or manage their frustration around toilet training. And the parent's job is to frame the situation so The child has some room and some ability and some understanding to actually use those skills that they all have to uh, solve it. You know, I think it's worth stating also that a lot of times as parents, we we like, of course, we want to help our children. So wouldn't it be natural for a parent to say, well, you know, you're so young, you know, so little. Wouldn't it be better if I just solve this for you? But almost anyone who's been a parent will tell you, that doesn't work so well, because when someone else tries to solve your problem, well, now the subject has changed to uh, you know, a conflict between the parent and the child. So it, it's really the secret to success always lies in finding some way to create a situation or an understanding or a, a stance really allows the child to have the freedom and the uh, ingenuity and the creativity to solve that problem themselves
0: it sounds so easy when you say, it. (laughs) I mean, I think you're right about the solving other people's problems. Honestly, I think, I mean, I think back on my, my children when they were teenagers and young adults and, you know, you want to swoop in and make their life easier, but the key to them being successful is figuring it out on their own. And I think the best thing that ever happened to my kids is they moved far away. (laughs) So it wasn't easy for me to, to fix anything, and that was a hard lesson, probably harder for me to learn than for them and uh
1: so very hard, you know you, you hate to see your children suffer if someone's having trouble, and if you think you know the answer, and of course, as parents, we think we always have more knowledge than our children um, don't we <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you what we've certainly been around longer, all parents are older than their kids um, and so uh yeah it's only natural to think. It's a helpful thing to give them that extra knowledge and experience. But I think the extra knowledge and experience comes in most handy if you use that to gain confidence as a parent to allow the child that space. I think that's the tricky part, actually. The trickiest part is thinking that things are going to be okay if you let the child manage it a bit.
0: So can you walk through like an example of well, you probably know an example off the top of your head. Why don't you think about something and sort of break it down what that would really look like if I'm the pediatrician talking with a parent about, you know, X situation.
1: Sure. So uh, Drew, who's a a six-year-old girl, is very angry at her uh, little uh, brother, Jack. And uh, because Drew uh, worked very hard to draw something, a nice picture on her paper, and then Jack came and took a paintbrush and wiped black paint all over it. So Drew hauled off and pushed her little brother Jack down. Now, often parents feel a reflex to get very angry at that situation and come run in and say, Drew, what have you done? Look what you've done, you've hurt your brother. We don't do this in our house, don't you know the rule? This is the rule, you're going to time out, we won't have this anymore. So in our experience, that almost never works. And uh, now, how do I? What do I mean by it doesn't work? What I mean is, next time Drew paints a little picture, Jack's going to think it's really exciting. You know, all this hubbub occurs if he just splashes some paint on there. Everyone, everyone stops what they're doing and turns their attention to what Baby Brother is doing. So, what I would say to these parents, uh, the advice I would offer would be, you know, what you really want to do is help. Drew get to a point where she has another idea when uh, Jack gets her angry. So what you wanna do is uh, ask two questions and then use silence to really push Ryan to think, I'm sorry, Drew, to think about what, what else they could do. So the two questions are really set up to surprise the child who's angry that you're not angry. That makes them curious. What's going on? So we like the idea of neutral questions. For instance, I see that uh, that Jack just ruined your picture. And that and and no, oh, I'm sorry. I would start with the first question. I see that you pushed uh, Jack down. So uh, you want to start with. The offense, so, and you want to be very neutral. And, and the word I see is very neutral. There's no good, any argument about that. And they might be very curious why aren't you screaming at them? So, uh, hmm, I wonder what mom or dad has up their sleeves when they're just being so nice to me and pointing this out. So, I see that you pushed uh, Jack down. Second question next t- and I think the reason why you pushed Jack down was because he ruined your picture. Now, parents almost always know what the offense is, and they almost know why the offense occurred. So you can always come up with those questions, and it's very important to be very neutral in them. And then here comes the third question, which ushers in the silence. So, Drew, let me ask you something. Next time that Jack does this to you and you get this angry, what's another thing you could do besides pushing Jack down? Those first two questions establish a conversation or at least a lean in, the child's engaged. Now that third question comes, that's too impossible. If someone's engaged with you in conversation and you ask them a nice question for them not to respond. Now the pressure is enormous on Drew to come up with an answer. And so you see now, we that's what I mean, you've created that space in which the child can tap their ability to come up with another solution. And we almost never see this fail. We've counseled over 10,000 families with these techniques and it's essentially a hundred percent success rate. And what happens is in this instance, the older child will say, well, I guess I could come to you and say, look what my little brother did. Uh, can you give me a hand? Or I could say, you know, who cares? I'll just draw another picture. Or, you know, they'll, they'll usually come up with an answer. And now what the parent can do is c- construct a uh, consequences picture. So for the older child, okay, those are great ideas, uh, Drew. Let's put, make a picture out of them. So here, next time this happens, you can make a choice to get angry at your brother and push him down. Or you can come up with this other idea that you came up with. Let's write it out here and we'll come up with your idea. Now, we honor your and respect your choices. So, yes, if you choose to get angry and hurt your brother, here's what's going to happen. On the other hand, if you go with your new plan, here's what's going to happen. And 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 the end of this story is next time when uh, Drew gets very angry and hauls off and hurts her brother, parent doesn't have to get angry. They can say, Oh, isn't that interesting? Looks like you chose uh, you know, your first choice here. And and we all agreed that if you choose that, this is what happens. So it looks like you've chosen for this to happen. So we'll we'll follow your lead and and let's do that now. We'll do it your choice. You'll notice that um every The problem's really in the hands of the child who created the difficulty. The child feels some ownership about this. They may not be happy about the whole thing all the time, but they know that there's no way out. It's not as though they're going to get out of this by causing a lot of hubbub and everyone screaming and people being angry and punishments flying. In fact, we're not even talking about punishment. We're talking about choices and natural consequences. The child crafts the consequences and the child chooses the consequences. In that setting, kids usually choose a path that you know is preferable to them. So that, that's our general approach to uh, to uh, figuring out who's the boss. In this case, the child creating the problem, Drew, is the boss of the problem. The parent is the boss of crafting a scenario in which they can solve it.
0: You sound so calm as you're describing that, which makes me go, ah, that sounds so good. It sounds honestly like motivational interviewing. I mean, I think about, you know, somebody smoking on the one hand, you really enjoy smoking and it kind of gives you a break and it kind of gets you calm. And on the other hand, smoking causes blah, blah, blah. And that seems like that gets in the way of your goal of living forever, can you see a way to get from one to the other? I mean, it sounds like a very similar strategy that parents can actually learn.
1: For sure. I mean, the basic elements are the same. You're searching for a rapport, in this case, a rapport between the parent and the child. And then you're searching for uh, offering the uh, child a choice.
0: Yeah. And like you said, it gives them some ownership and power to create that. And I also think that it would help parents because I think sometimes we lose control. The kids having the meltdown and now I've entered the meltdown because I'm upset or angry and now nobody's doing well and then the the emotion gets elevated. I honestly I've told this story before but I think about one time my daughter when she was 4 was super feisty and spirited and it was oftentimes not easy and she would be the kid in the grocery store in the cart would be that would be screaming because she wanted something and I'd just push her along hoping that people was weren't gonna think I was a terrible parent. And one day i just got my buttons were pushed and she was drinking some chocolate milk and screaming about something and i literally it was a snowy day i rolled the window down i took the chocolate milk and just pitched it out in the snow and it was not a proud parent moment <laughs> i think about it now and it's funny but at the time i i certainly was not solving the problem very well well you
1: know we're all human i've had times with my kids you know i don't like to remember and uh, i think that makes it honest, you know. I think if someone was some sort of scripted parent who always did things right, the kids wouldn't believe that they were for real or that what they were saying meant anything. So yeah, if you get upset at times, sure, that's gonna happen. And that just that's part of living together and part of being real.
0: Can you use that in the heat of the moment? I'm all, I'm thinking kind of on Ross Green's um work about um. Uh, working with difficult children and you know he kind of talks about these different baskets and one of them is choosing this kind of collaborative problem solving which it sounds similar to what you're talking about but he also said if a kid is in the middle of a meltdown it's sort of hard to be rational with them and maybe that's the time we sort of take a deep breath and because what you're hoping is that they're not going to get to those meltdowns every time does that make sense yeah,
1: so you know tantrums in uh, let's say one and a half to five year olds, six year olds. that's a state of mind that's fairly unique. Hopefully, when you're older, you don't go through that state of mind. But certainly when you're one and a half, you do. and And I like to think of tantruming in early childhood as a like a computer freezing and needing to reboot. So you know what, what, what's that about? I think it's worth uh, mentioning something about that. Six-month olds don't tantrum. We'll never see a six month old go into a tantrum. They might cry when they're hungry. That's different than tantruming because if you're a six month old and you're crying and you're hungry and you get fed, guess what you do? You stop crying. The need is met, you stop crying. In other words, the brain is still working. It's seeking something, it finds it, it's resolved. A tantrum is a situation where the mind is seeking, doesn't even know what it's seeking. It's actually crashed like a computer freezing. And why does that happen around one and a half? Because what happens at one and a half is something called the, uh, the explosion of consciousness. As six months ago, know that the world can be better, that it's worse. It just is. Whereas by 18 months of age, the mind begins to be aware that the situation can be different than it is. That mom and dad gave you Cheerios, but you really want Wheaties. Or, you know, watching this TV show, you want that TV show, or you want to be with dad instead of mom or mom instead of dad, whatever. Desires come into play that the child's aware of, but the child's not aware of how to articulate those desires or how to achieve them. And that's what causes the crash. They have an overwhelming sense that things aren't the way they want them. They have no idea, especially early on at one and a half, what they want. You know, the brain's unhappy. It feels an urgency to change, doesn't know how to change. And what happens? It crashes. It actually freezes. and it doesn't work anymore. So tantrum is a situation where things aren't working, especially in the one and a half, two and a half, three-year-old age range. And in that situation, trying to help a child in that situation or help that child resolve the tantrum is as effective as trying to type a command on your keyboard when your computer is frozen. It won't work. It won't work till you reboot. And the more you have input to the child while their brain's not working, the more it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. The best thing you can do for a a child tantrum in early childhood is to leave them alone. Because once they're left alone, a hundred percent of the time they will reboot. They'll reboot better than any Microsoft product. And and, and the sooner you can leave them alone to reboot, the sooner the tantrum will be over. So yeah everything I just said about Ryan and Jack, I'm sorry, Drew and Jack isn't going to work if one of the kids that you're trying to help is tantruming. So if you're, if you're in the middle of a tantrum, just let it go, let it blow. You have no choice really. That's, what, that's what's going to happen, but you can only make it worse by trying to end the tantrum for the child.
0: Yeah. I've often said, you know, your 18 month old or your two year old has not great language skills and biting you seem like a really great way for them to tell you they're not happy about it, but you talking to them about how it's not nice to bite people and to go on a very lengthy, let's not do that, that that's probably, you may want to just say, no, put them down and walk away. And, and I think we have this wanting to make it a teachable moment And then we just keep engaging the kid and they're sort of getting something for it. And, you know, you're right. The more that they are able to get what they want by doing that, well, they're going to keep doing it because that makes sense. They're smart and they're the boss of that. You're right. They're going to win.
1: Yeah. We all at all ages, even at our age, we do, it works.
0: That's right. Well, and you want what you want when you want it. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, who doesn't want what you want right now? Um, But that doesn't always mean that you get it and you sometimes have to wait or work or whatever. So you said something about, you know, younger kids and tantrums and hopefully you don't do it when you're older. I would say that sometimes teenagers, it often looks like a tantrum with really good language skills. Does this kind of work for that age group too?
1: I think the tantrum of a two-year-old, that sort of, uh, see, two-year-olds just new to consciousness, brand new to dealing with having thoughts. That they're aware of, that they can react to consciously. A teenager might look like they're tantruming, but they're not tantruming like a two-year-old. There's something terribly wrong with somebody if they're actually that incapacitated um, to that degree. I mean, two-year-old—I really do mean it. Their their brain, the brain's ability to synthesize what they're thinking and to come up with any sort of step forward is is gone. That's different than outburst of anger, and you know adolescents and adults can have out-of-control anger flares. But they're different than a two-year-old tantrum. They might look similar, but, you know, we often say to people when they talk to us about their teenager being out of control, you know, they're throwing things. Okay. Was anyone hurt? Were any windows broken? Was any damage done? So, it's not completely out of control. It may feel, and if someone is completely out of control in the teenage years or adult years, that that's a pretty serious uh, uh, decompensation. So, uh, so I I'd make a distinction between the tantrums that we see in our uh, teenagers and tantrums we see in our two-year-olds. Now, having said that, in some ways, the two-year-old tantrum is a lot easier, I mean, even though it's a worse situation for the brain. The brain's less effect, less um, in in, in effective, uh, at least, you know, that they'll recover. You just walk away. And in a minute, there are a couple minutes, maybe a few minutes there, uh, they reboot and they come back. Whereas an angry teenager could be angry for weeks, but that is a process of negotiation with someone whose brain is actually functioning. And, uh, that that's an interesting situation. How does a parent manage conflict with a teenager and again i think the same principle applies you know you talk to them you try to find some common ground you're not going to make any progress with anybody unless you start with common ground and if you do find common ground again let's say uh someone's very upset that uh you took their cell phone away because they um were caught using a cigarette, let's say, and they're pouting and they're furious at you for weeks. So hopefully before many weeks go by, you can come to them and, and say, I, I see again, similar sort of strategy. I see that uh, you're very upset about how we handled finding that you were smoking cigarettes. And then I can understand why you're, why it hurts to be cut off from your phone and your friends. Especially during the pandemic when the phone's probably your only connection to your friends. So let's talk about, you know, uh, what your thoughts might be on how to handle this. In other words, that doesn't have to be those words, but some approach looking for common ground and looking for a conversation. And sometimes you need help. Sometimes, you know, part of adolescence is shoving off and not looking for resolution with the parents and looking for a way to crack open some space. And sometimes that involves getting them really angry. And uh, you may not be the right person to help figure that out and, and getting some help can come in handy in that situation. But I hope I'm giving you a flavor It's a little different than the two-year-old tantrum. It doesn't write itself so easily. And the brain is working a, at a much more complex level than the two-year-olds.
0: Shoot, I was hoping it was going to be 100% effective super quick. <laughs> well, and I've, I've sometimes talked to parents of teenagers that, you know, their brain is still under construction it's certainly in a different place than a two-year-old that they have this part of their brain, you know, the reptile brain, the, and when it fires their prefrontal cortex, which isn't in a very good place is not thinking straight. So, you know, you get stopped by a police officer because you're speeding, your first reaction isn't to punch them, but you know, a teenager who's not thinking straight, you know, they may do. And, you know, so you want to help them before they blow to problem solve, but you know, once they've blown, sometimes you just have to step away and and let the fire cool a bit before you can, because they can't think straight with that. And sometimes I think that that's a, a helpful mindset, so to speak, for a parent to sort of, you know, um, and and also I think not to take it personally. You know, when your teenager says "I hate you," you know, it's hard not to take that personally, but it's probably not really about you and you know, just like when your two-year-old says, I I hate you, you don't, you know, you're like, okay, well, whatever. So, but yes, I would agree that teenagers, that's a a whole nother thing. But I think that the the premise of helping them figure out the consequences, how you're going to solve it. Yeah. If you choose this, you know, this may happen. And, you know, and even talking about with them about well, what, what consequences do you think would be fair in that? It's amazing. Sometimes kids are really hard on themselves and their consequences were way worse than anything you were thinking.
1: started a negotiation. Yeah. You negotiation. Know, we were invited, Susan and I, to talk about these issues with young kids to a group of uh, people who worked at our the largest medical uh, health, uh, health insurer in our region. So we gave our talk very much like what we're talking about. And at the at the end, someone said, you know, would you come back and, and give the same discussion to help us resolve office conflicts? So these are people, you know, 30 years old and up through 70 who said, you know, just what we're talking about, same principles apply to uh, inter-office conflicts. And these are amongst not adolescents, but adults. So I think um, in many ways, what we're talking about with adolescents is something we still struggle with ourselves. And... Um, Of course, as pediatricians, we always look very calm, cool and delivered, you know, (laughs) but there's lots of emotions boiling inside everybody. And I think um, in some ways, thinking about how to work with adolescents, it's helpful to think about how you work with your spouse and how you work with yourself and your co-workers, all those lessons of how people work with each other, I think are relevant to working with adolescents too. Although I do agree that their minds are different than, you know, a 20 or 30 or 40 year old
0: this sounds very much like a class that I took through our hospital. It was called Crucial Conversations. And it's very much the same. Um, They talk about at the very beginning, the shared pool of meaning that, hey, we're all in this together. I think we all want the same thing. I see that you keep coming into work late every day and that's a problem for your coworkers. Can we talk about that? And that's very different than being accusatory. And I wish that we could have these kinds of, civil discourses, you know, right now in our country, because there is so much anger and fear and frustration and people losing control and doing scary things and, and a lot of fear. I think there's a lot of fear. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think we, we all want to thrive and be seen and heard and valued. And it seems to be a bit of a, a point right now.
1: Well, you know, I didn't really put this together, but I really appreciate your insight, Leah. Because if you think about it, the heart of democracy is listening to someone's problems and solving them. So you can measure the effectiveness of democracy by how well that country or state or city has identified the things that are really causing pain for people and resolving those problems. So uh, that is something we're certainly seeing being challenged in our country right now. I have absolute full faith and confidence that if our nation actually solved the big problems that are facing most people, the happiness quotient would go skyrocketing. and A lot of the frustration that people are feeling would be uh, resolved, would end. Um, but the, the alternative to listening and problem solving, which is really what we've been talking about the whole time, is rage and resentment and fury in a sense that your problems never going to get solved and things will never be fair and we see that you know at all ages we talked about the two year old tantrum being a situation where someone's paralyzed by being unable to manage that resentment and anger but we see in adolescents we certainly see in adults where you can you can choose not to solve the problem you can choose to attack others and um i think that, that is the challenge for every community at every point in history and we're at that point now so i think that's a it's a really interesting take on it that these these themes actually apply to whether we have a democracy or not.
0: And I think you throw fear in there, and that just, you know, people don't function very well when they're scared because then your whole, you know, you're you're on a whole nother. Like I got to protect myself, and if fighting back, um, screaming or whatever, I think is going to keep me safe. Um, and I'm afraid, and um, I think we're less afraid when we're with other people and trying to problem solve when it feels like there's some compromise that are not, or maybe a solution or something that's going to work for both of us. And we're going to both get something out of it. And that might be helpful. So, well, I love all your insights and, you know, problem solving for the world, actually. <laughs> What's your next book?
1: Well, you know, one book I've been thinking about working on is uh has to do with, what I call the line of concern. So, you know, as pediatricians, we get called by parents who've gone over the line of concern. We don't get called unless they're worried about something. So, and and over the course, every pediatrician will tell you that, you know, it's sometimes frustrating when people call when nothing's wrong or they call when it's too late. And, you know, I've been very careful across my career to always never think about it that way, but always see parents as calling when they're worried. But the idea is, let's take a cold, for instance, and this is pre-pandemic. It's a different, cold, or a very different situation now that COVID is out there. But if you can recall a a life before COVID, how does it, you know, how do we know when to worry about a child's got a cold? Well, you know, they're trouble breathing, they're in pain, this sort of thing. So we can construct that line of concern. What symptoms are present to say, okay, I'm worried. And if you don't have any of those symptoms, you can say, I think you're okay. And then go down a list of maybe 20, 30, 40 different situations where we can draw that line of concern and share that with parents. So we've been toying around with that idea for a project.
0: That's a great title, The Line of Concern. It could be an app, an interactive, uh, you know, pick this, if that, you know, what would be next? And and I think we all do that as pediatricians, you know, that, um, you know, do they have a temperature? Are they responsive? I always have thought like, uh, you know, what, what do they look like when their temperature goes down? Cause if they still look really bad, now I'm worried if they look pretty good, that's probably okay. You know, but those are those nuances that we get. And I I certainly in the middle of the night answering those calls, I I remember sometimes not always being so sympathetic, like it's just a fever. Can I go back to bed? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, but I think we, we, Kind of see the problem as like, oh, that's not a big deal. But if you're a mom of a six month old and worried, your line of concern may be very different than mine. So I love that title. (laughs) I love that idea. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you is if you could go back and talk to yourself as a resident, what advice would you give the younger Arthur?
1: Wow, that's such a powerful question. I guess, uh, I think back to my residency days, uh, I want to say that probably the greatest challenge I experienced were pressures to make me devalue the relationship I had with patients. And there were lots of such pressures. There was staying up back then every two nights. There was the enormous amount of work for very little pay. You know, it was just a, there was lives on the line and, you know, not being trained yet to be fully, uh, skilled in, in managing those crises, plenty of supervision. So patients were safe, but still you're in a position of tremendous responsibility. So all those things are distracting, being tired, sleep deprived, forced to confront crises, um, and all those things, it's very tempting. To, like we were talking about, it's tempting to get resentful. It's tempting to blame the patient. It's tempting to blame uh, your situation. So I think my lucky star is that somehow or another, a guardian angel or someone's looking after me and kept whispering in my ear, don't give up the relationship. That's your rope. That's going to save you. It's going to make you a good doctor. That's going to give purpose and meaning and, and give you an orientation, a framework that allows you to understand and orient everything you do as a doctor. Don't lose sight of that as a resident. So that that was whispered in my ear by something outside of myself. And I'm always grateful that it did. And if I went back to residency, I would pray that that voice would be inside me because um, that, that is definitely the mainstay of everything I do even to this day. And that's it, the thing I value most are the relationships. I've been, you know, we, we have grandpatients now, taking care of people long enough, they've grown up from newborn to become parents, and I take care of their children. None of that would happen if I wasn't connected to those families uh, personally. So I think that's the main message I would give myself. Listen to that voice, stay close to that voice, and stay true to that voice.
0: That is a wonderful place to end. And it's very interesting. I've heard, having done a few of these episodes now, that returning to relationship is um, a big theme that, you know, I mean, it is not clouded, but there's all the part about knowledge that I think as physicians, we get hung up on, like I have to know all this stuff. And I forget in my worry about not knowing that my just saying to the patient, I'm not sure, but I, I'm going to look into that. I'm going to ride the ride. I'm here with you. I can understand why you're worried. You know, I'll worry with you is, you know, that you're not giving up your power by saying, I'm really not sure right now, but We'll work together to figure it out. And that that relationship building is, I I think that's why people come back. They don't come back because we're the smartest person in the world.
1: Yeah, one of the best things uh, someone taught me, uh, one of those voices, I guess I heard as a resident was, you don't always have the answers, but you can always be with someone with their questions. So you can always say to someone, I'll always be with you, whatever question you ask. And that's a different project than saying, I'll always have the answer.
0: Yeah, I wish that we all had the answer right. <laughs> well, listen, you stay well, and I, too, will look forward to um, post-pandemic and being able to see you in person would be a lovely thing. I, I was thinking about it today about, you know, although we do all this Zoom, and honestly, this has been such a lovely experience for me being able to talk to people that I you know consider my friends now um but you don't we lose the nuance the stuff that happens after the meeting the hey you want to see my kids uh here's a new picture or you know when are you going on vacation you you don't have the opportunity to do that on a zoom call and i, I think for me i miss that a lot you know yeah, it's a
1: time of loss in a lot of ways for real but well, ho- hopefully it have uh, been a major pleasure and a So, so grateful that you've invited me back and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.
0: Oh, well, it's made my day. Thank you so much. And, you know, hopefully we will all get through this together. And I think maybe appreciate this piece of connection with others. Because, you know, at at the end of the day, all we got is each other. So
1: (laughs) for better or for worse, that is all we got.
0: (laughs) Well, listen, take care. And again, thank you so much.
1: Very welcome. Good to see you, Leah.
0: Thank you so much to Dr. Arthur Lavin for sharing what sounds like a pretty simplistic way to intervene with childhood behaviors, but, you know, take some skills and mastery for the parents as well as the kids. So here are my takeaways. Number one, his book, Who's the Boss?, was written as a guide for parents to help children build skills around problem solving. Number two, if person A, the child, is in conflict with person B, the parent, for example, It is really up to person A to find the solution, and parents can guide children in accomplishing this task. So it really helps them build these mastery skills. Number three, parents can help frame the dilemma, adapting a neutral tone and offering space for the child to consider solutions. Number four, you can help sort of structure the conversation with kids in that you describe, I see what happened, like you shoved your brother I believe the reason this happened is, for example, he messed up your project. And what is another thing you could do the next time this happens? Be quiet and wait for the child's ideas. So if you can kind of use this model, it may really help kids think about ways that they can deal with their own struggles and frustrations. Number five, Dr. Lavin says this approach has a 100% success rate. I only wish I'd known about it when my kids were little. Number six, children own the solution and understand and even create the consequences. And I think those can be much more powerful than the ones that we try to construe for them. Number seven, tantrums in young children. It's like the mind froze, like a computer crash. If you just walk away and wait for the reboot, the kids can then pick it up and perform better. Number eight, teens are more complicated. And even though I wanted to simplify it and say that teen tantrums are like toddler tantrums with better language skills, it's really more complex than that. And we may have to wait out their anger, keeping in mind that the reptile brain or the amygdala is is firing when kids are in an emotional state. And that sometimes overwhelms that prefrontal cortex. So if there are these major meltdowns and explosions, we sometimes just have to take a breath and wait. And if it's really more than that, then that's where additional help from a professional might be important to consider. Thank you so much, Dr. Lavin. These are really helpful practical tips that I hope pediatricians and other healthcare providers that care for kids can share with parents. We're always looking for practical kinds of information and tools. So thanks again. I hope you guys are all well and healthy and safe and take good care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.